Hello, are we on the air yet? Welcome to the Core Performance Podcast, taking you one step closer to self-mastery on and off the course. Fire up that growth mindset, and let's dive into the core of elite golf and human performance. Now, here's your hosts, Ian Highfield and Andrew Losey. Hello, golfers. Hello, core golfers. And a huge shout out to high performers everywhere. I'm Ian Highfield, and I am your host of the Core Performance Podcast. And on today's show, we are talking about the power of play with the Discover Golf founder, Richard Franklin. So Richard is someone who is making huge strides uh, in the golf world with his innovations uh, and his understanding of the power of play. His Discover Golf company is helping junior golfers all over the globe now fall in love with this great game and take the way that golf is coached and learned to a whole other level. And best of all, it's fun and absolutely packed with science and research at its foundation. So myself uh, and Dan and Judd, who run the training camp at Core Golf, decided to jump on a call with Rich uh, and pick his brains. Uh, so here's a great conversation on junior golf and the power of play. Rich, how are you, buddy? Thanks for uh, jumping on 6.15 in the morning. Appreciate your uh, your dedication to, to getting on this podcast. Ian, what, what a pleasure to be with you. Really, really looking forward to this. Second time, right? Second time we've done this. Second, second time. Let's go, baby. <laughs> and the, the main reason is uh, obviously now I'm at Core Golf uh, as the director. Uh, and Judd, Dan and Mike, who are on this podcast, they run the, uh, the training camp. Uh, and recently, uh, Judd invested some time and some money in coming to, to visit you and uh, really experienced uh, what, what I was trying to, to, to preach to the guys uh, and, and a concept that they've really bought into since I've been there, which is the power of play. Uh, so why don't we build on that? Just introduce yourself to, to the listeners. Uh, tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do. And then let's start rolling with, with the power of play and how we're implementing a lot of your strategies at Core Golf. Thanks so much. Um, well, a lot to unpack there, which, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to getting into here over the next hour or so. Um, the power of play, uh, you know, what's, what's our entry point into that conversation? I mean, I think what's really fascinating about play is that it's um, it, it represents so many different fields of thought, right? And I think that's what you guys are now experiencing, which you know I'm I'm certainly grateful for. And a lot of coaches that are getting deeper into Discover Golf is realizing, you know, we are way beyond sort of the surface veneer of fun or games or play. Um, this is a deeply uh, humanistic study. And, you know, you can start talking about its motor learning implications. You can talk about its ability to create group identity. You can start talking about its ability to help people 
become more self-aware and creative. So it's individualistic, it's group-based, it's, uh, you know, you can, you can really tease play a part in so many different ways. Um, it, it, one could describe it as an outlook towards life. So um, I, I think, you know, using play as just the, the landscape um, in which we have a conversation as humans, as self-improvers, as coaches, I think it just really enriches our vocabulary, right? I think it's just using, uh, let's say, human or experiential terminology um, which to me is just the, the core of existence and the core of how I frame uh, my coaching. So Rich, I, I, I don't know if I don't know if I directly answered your question. Or no, not, no. But, um, you, you gave me somewhere to go. You, you know, I'm me and you on a on a couple of text message chains. We've we've nerded out a little bit about motor learning, um, and I know that you've been interested in motor learning for a while. Um, you were once called the techiest golf coach mm -hmm. in golf right so let's let's home in on the motor learning because i'm very interested to to put that information out there because i think you're right when people look at this they look at the surface level and think these kids are playing but they're not it, it does go way deeper than that so i would love you to home in on a little bit on on the motor learning aspect because i feel that would, would love to yeah, I feel that's one myth that we need to blow up, that when these kids are, oh, yeah. are doing these things and not practicing grip stance posture or whatever, they're not learning, they're just having fun. So if you can build on that, that would be awesome. Yeah, well, what what a, what a deep dive. Um, I, I want to figure out exactly where I want to start this, but um, why, don't, why don't we start this with like a very clear sort of summation of maybe let's say two fields of thought. And, you know, I think rather than pointing at specifically names or theories, which we'll get into in a second, I think for me, it's really important that I've sort of been able to unpack this idea that, um, you know, say since the fifties, you know, where we had sort of the, the cognitive psychology boom happen. Right. And so, you have all of these theories and, you know, everything from behavioral therapies to motor learning theories that are what I would say brain centric, right? And you'll hear this analogy, right? That the human being is a supercomputer and that we basically just have to download the correct software and the body will essentially spit out the answer, right? And so then you have these ideas of well, we could create mental models of the world or mental models of this thing called golf. And, you know, again, the, the, the supercomputer that is the human will be able to faithfully recreate its modeled interpretation of the world. <laughs> this is very much at odds with thinking that you would get primarily from um, ecological psychology. So the Gibsonia approach, which is I think really better understood, even going further back in time, looking at work in philosophy, excuse me, and work by Husserl and Heidegger and philosophers that were suggesting um, this phenomenological approach, right? So phenomenology is a really important concept for coaches to understand, which is really nicely linked to ecological dynamics. So let me try to unpack that because that's a lot of words. 
So essentially, the thinking there is that there are no such thing as objects in the world, right? So it is really just our subjective experience of a thing that is the correct level of analysis. So what does that mean? Well, it's not really a cup or it's not really a golf club. It's not really a hammer, right? Those are sort of culturally arbitrary terms for something that is perceived as graspable or something that can strike something. So it's really in direct uh, reference to your um, sort of innate sensibility as to what you can do with the thing itself, right? So this is the language of affordances, which, which Gibson was, was so famous for bringing to the, to the forefront. So I think what you start looking at is you say, and to me, this is also an interesting place for sort of an anthropological perspective, right? So if you were to strip away the modern veneer of computers and cars and, um, you know, the, the, the cultural wrapper of, of modern times, and you were to look back 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, 1,000 years, 50,000 years ago, which is really no time at all, given the, the spans of, of time itself, I think you would start to see that, oh my goodness, we are, um, you know, our uh, homo sapien and, and brain development and all of these amazing advancements in humankind really directly relate to our ability to perceive the natural environment and act upon it or exploit it, right? So this, this is all gathering steam, hopefully, to, to the listeners that the human being is an amazingly um, adaptive um, mover, right? That, that is always looking to exploit its immediate environment. And just because we have a prefrontal cortex that can explain this in representational terms doesn't mean that that's how we perceive the world, right? So we are, I think, way more... Uh, social, environmentally intelligent, emotional uh, creatures that you can then start to say, wow, I, I can see why this divide between brain-centric thinking and ecological thinking uh, is so important to sort of parse out. So for me, motor learning is then, you know, of course, intimately wrapped into this, you know, so you have thinkers like... Um, um uh sorry first thing in the morning here um uh nikolai bernstein right so nikolai bernstein what what is he telling us right that we have this sort of like infinite set of degrees of freedom right and so like what is so what is the problem or the opportunity of motor control it's trying to create right this uh you know an optimal solution given the fact that we have an infinite set of movement capabilities within our body. So, you know, you as a coach can say, well, that's, that's something that I need to basically, let's say prune down, right? Because if, if, if your arms and legs and torso and all these different joint segments can move in infinite ways and in infinite space, well, then my job is to basically put a straight jacket on you and, and, and prune you down to one way of doing it. Again, I think if you are a grand appreciator of the movement capacity 
right? And the creativity and the adaptability of the human, you wouldn't want to go that route. You would want to explore how many different ways a human can move given like a never ending stream of novelty within their environment. So then you can say like, okay, well, I'm with you. But then like, why do, you know, why do LPGA, you know, Korean women that, that come up through like hardcore block training or the, you know, VJ Singh that, that just sort of like mindlessly hits the same shot over and over again. You know, how do you explain like these, like, you know, high achievers? And that's like a valid question for sure. And it's something that I, I sort of struggle with. And I think we also need to maybe change the paradigm here between, I think, deliberate practice and deliberate play or deliberate play to deliberate practice left to right, you know, <laughs> developmentally, if you will, I think we can restructure that a little bit. And, and maybe that's a decent segue into the next um, place, because I think we should probably uh, bat around the ideas I just talked about. But I think this all gets back to, um, you know, we, we as coaches just rearranging the language that we're using um, and at least giving due credence to ecological dynamics and anthropology and philosophy. You know, there, there's some very, 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 very smart people that have paved the way that to me is not being recognized in the coaching community. Um, because for one way or the other, we have gone so brain centric, so cognitive focused um, um, that we've lost sight of that. Yeah, I, I think my initial introduction into the golf world, what, 14 years ago, I was definitely heavily involved in cognitive psychology. Um, more recently, the core, the core manual that all of these guys on, on this podcast are exposed to, we cover Bernstein's hammer, we cover uh, Gibson's affordances. Um, a big quote, that, that I use all the time. Ask not what's in your head, ask what your head is in. Because I do yeah. believe it's the environments that we create that really shape uh, the behaviors, the behavioral changes that, that we desire. Um, so what, what I'd like you to do, Rich, for, for parents and for golfers that are listening to this that probably haven't read the core manual or don't know who um, Bernstein is, what does it look like? Like you've explained what it is that, that you're trying to shift, but what does a discover golf session look like when Dan Judd, Mike put the equipment out? What implications is that having on, on the junior golfer? Why is it so effective in, in helping them learn? Well, I think you have to first say, you know, what, what are the outcomes that we so seek? Right. I think that's a really important question to start with. You know, so we, we just we're, we're we're digging into sort of the constitute parts of motor control and motor behavior and high performance is sort of attached to that. That's not necessarily always the outcome that we're striving for. Right. And I think this is a bigger point about, um, you know, maybe the business or the the ecosystem um, that houses let's say junior golf. And I, and I actually don't even like that term because I think that's too myopic. I mean, why, why would we as, you know, tenured professionals working with human beings for, you know, decades, 
and, and ourselves and others, right? And just in getting to know the research, why would we want to be so limited in what we conceive as our core competency, right? To, for, for me to simply say like my, uh, you know, my value proposition to humans and to the communities that they reside in is simply to make them a proficient golfer. I mean, that, that, that makes me, that makes me ill. Um, I, I can do so much more. And so I think that using golf and, and again, we can go on both sides of this. We can certainly talk about, you know, how we might want to progress a child from, uh, you know, no experience in golf to being an expert golfer, but I don't think that's necessarily the most fruitful conversation. Couldn't we use this piece of green grass as an invitation to, I mean, we could rattle off 20 different things here that I think we could in good faith endorse through, um, through play. And so I think if we were to say, okay, what does a Discover Golf session look like? It's saying, well, through the medium of play, through the medium of let's just say stick and ball, right? Or just ballistic instrument, right? Again, going back to like um, affordances or phenomenology, like in that context, is the golf club a golf club or is it your third arm that's a vehicle for creating and endorsing compelling emergent opportunities for behavior? That's to me what it is, right? It's not a golf club. It's a it's it's an affordance for creating a stimulating environment that teaches you about yourself and others. What a what a what a more profound way to look at the experience rather than to have to arbitrarily tether yourself to some outcome that again, a it's a commodity, right? Because every single quote unquote golf pro on every street corner in America is basically touting the same thing. So like there's that sort of dimensionality too, which is like, I just do not want to be in the herd of people that um, are looking at this at such a just two-dimensional view. Um, so anyway, I'm, I guess I'm hopefully not skirting around your question, but I'm just giving it some context because I think it, it needed that. Um, so what does a Discover Golf session look like? Well, because our outcomes are so varied, I think you're going to see a willingness to explore um, different makeups of the environment, right? So you might have um, games that um, are solely based on uh, kind of a sandbox mentality, right? Where, where juniors are engineering or exploring the possibilities within a fairly loose arrangement of constraints. You may then have objectives, tasks, games that are very narrow, right, in their um, sort of possibility space and very much want maybe only one or two choices to be made and probably arc closer to deliberate practice than deliberate play. You might have situations that are designed solely to create haptic learning, right? So different kind of rope, excuse me, roped clubs or different shaft clubs or different heads, different equipment, really playing with just the sort of physical sensibilities of the environment. And then you might, you know, within all of that experience, you know, kind of a narrative arc of what are we playing for? What are the teams? Is this 2v2v2v2? Is this 4v4v4v4? Is this 30 versus 30? What are we playing for? What, what kind of privilege does this get me later in the day? 
um, you know, sort of the anticipate the anticipation of what's to come, which is a release of dopamine. And so now you, you know, again, you can go back and forth between the sort of neurochemical um, implications of what we're doing, but it's all then related to like the hero's art, right? And like you're living a story, so like you're in a metaphor. So this is more of like embodied cognition, where like you're to to your your lovely quote. It's like you're you're in the environment and you're living this sort of extension of yourself within this metaphor. And that's a beautiful thing too. So, you know, to try to put a, um, you know, to, to, to try to put a thumbnail image of what discover golf would look like is just impossible. Um, because I'd, I'd want it to be at least a little bit of all those things. So when, when you're out there, coaching rich you you still out there quite a bit right i see videos of you up in oh absolutely yeah when you're setting up um the games uh and the discover golfer uh, equipment which is which is awesome with the graphics and it just enticing for for um for play right for instigating that environment of play what is your primary goal do you have a primary goal or is that student dependent and you can see each student working towards their own primary goals? Like when you create this environment, what is your number one thing that you're trying to achieve? Mm, It's a great question. I mean, I think, I, I think it's directly attached to the sort of affective state of the child, right? Which is directly related to the affective state of the group. And so what, what do I mean by that? It's like, we're trying to create a diversity of, um, let's say emotional milieus, right? The, these various pockets, these various environments that are all designed to elicit certain emotions. And I'd love to get into this because to me, this is, this is talking now about, um, or, or giving insights to long conversations I'm having with parents about, let's say, the shortcomings of modern education. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very blessed that, you know, I get to coach and, you know, think about our coaching in, let's just say, very progressive parts of the world, right? There's a reason why Discover Golf is thriving in places like the North Suburbs of Chicago, in Scottsdale, and uh, Massachusetts and Southern California and Dallas and Austin, right? Because you're seeing, right, places, and, and quite frankly, these are probably more affluent uh, pockets of, of our country that are very, very much concerned with the educational payload of the, the suite of activities that their children are engaged in, right? Of course. And if you talk to these parents about their concerns, there is a there is a very real concern about creating a kind of, um, let's say, robustness within the child, right? You can talk about anti-fragile properties. You can talk about emotional intelligence. You can talk about grit or resilience. I think all of these right ideas encapsulate what parents feel like is missing uh, in in current education. And for me, when I create Discover Golf training sessions, I want to create a a width and a depth 
of emotional contexts. Because if you ask me, and this is like starting to bridge into philosophy, but also motor learning and, and, and everything we're talking about, it, it is unbelievably important for all humans to A, you know, have a, let's say, a connectedness and appreciation of mindfulness, to use sort of an Eastern philosophical term, of the emotional state that they're in, right? But rather than using like a mindfulness approach, which is to like quietly observe it and then like sort of like let it sort of drift away, I think there's a time and a place for that. I think what I'm looking to do is, is, is use the emotional state right? As a, you know, as this kind of, uh, I, I, in my mind, I see this, like, um, the, this runaway stallion, right? It's like, and that's your emotion. Emotions are deeply intelligent, right? To, to get back to like the cognitive approach, you're seeing, you know, I mean, you could rattle off dozens of names, but Damasio comes to mind and these really forward thinkers in that, holy cow, emotion is really your brain, right? So even though it's maybe not coming from the brain, it's physiological, it's deeply intuitive. So what I'm trying to do with our students is to connect them with themes of joy, frustration, suffering, pain, exhilaration, curiosity, you know, being, uh, you know, a steward of the group, being a friend to somebody else, like creating all of these, what I hope are varied textures of feelings and beings and and then using that state as, again, the, the stallion analogy to say, see, when you're scared, use that emotion and channel it into, in this case, maybe trying harder or trying a different strategy or, you know, be willing to take five seconds to calm yourself down. So getting in touch with this array of emotions and then channeling it in effective ways Ian, again, regardless of the golf outcome, how much of that value proposition is going to resonate with these markets? Like with the parents, you mean, Rich? Like that when you say the market, you mean like with the parents, the people who are paying for yeah, the market yeah the, the 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 parents you know the the collective the collective consciousness about the lack of emotional training or emotional resilience that these kids are getting in schools well you you would hope a hundred percent right you would hope that parents value all of those things self-determination grit ability to deal with adversity making friendships being able to function in a team being happy <laughs> You would hope that parents would value those more than they value um, the is the grip. Does the grip look like a Varden grip and can they qualify for the next junior world? But we know that that doesn't always yeah. happen. So, yeah, but but let, but let, but let's get into that because this, this is the problem. That's it. You just you just touched on on the on the problem. Or we should say the you have a solution. If you definitely, if you have a solution for this, for, for that side to managing those parents, then let's go. This podcast will be gold. <laughs> well, that, 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 that's all we do. That's all we do right now is, is we're strengthening our resolve and, and our communication to parents around this theme. Right. And so there's a reason in the background right now, you know, we're working with different uh, you know, members of, let's just say, 
different stakeholders in different realms, right? People in nonprofit, people in education. Uh, you know, we're doing some work in the Middle East right now, which is sort of this emerging sort of golf culture and working at the ground level because we're dealing with bigger themes, right? That golf is in a unique place to address. This is such an important topic, right? Like what is golf? Golf is basically a collection of assets, right? That are, that are pinpointed or centered in places where parents, and there's a, again, a collective consciousness around doing better and seeking more ancient or more wise forms of training or education for their children. So we are at like, we, we already have beachheads set up in every place in the world that deeply cares about these ideas. Okay, cool. So we already have the sort of structural logistics needed to do this. Like that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Like we're not philosophers in a park, right? Like that's gonna, that's, that's gonna be really difficult to build out the kind of scaffolding and the business and you know all of the things that are gonna need to go into this, um, you know, to this really, I think, aggressive or ambitious strategy. And so that needs to be understood first. So then like, what is like, so then what's stopping this message to getting out to the parents? Well, it's guys like yourself and Dan and Mike and Judd on this phone call and other coaches that are willing to accept that they can do more, right? It's, it's a willingness to say, I'm not just a golf coach. Right. They're going to take all of their knowledge that they have of human beings, right? All of their knowledge that they have of how humans interact with balls and sticks and equipment and other people. And they're going to just make a little shift and they're going to say, oh my goodness, this is actually a microcosm for really deep concepts in philosophy and sociology and behavioral psychology. And with just a little bit of training and just a little bit of rearticulation and just a little bit of confidence and just one little leap of faith, Ian, my goodness, just have a little faith in what we're doing and just believe in it. And I promise you, you're closer to getting to this, to this space where you're offering so much more to so many more people. Yeah, I love I love that answer. I know that Dan has a question, um, but because you mentioned the training, I'm going to skip out on Dan for a second. Sorry, Dan. <laughs> he started to open his mouth there. I could see it on Zoom. Uh, right. uh, I'm going to go to uh, to Judd because he went on the training. So, Judd, why don't you you throw out a bit about your experience that you had when you went to the Discover Golf training? Um, you know, that's a great segue in. You can hear Richard's passion in that in that last answer. So what did you take from, from the training? And then Rich, if you want to jump in at any time, feel free. And Dan, then, then we'll come to you. I promise. Yeah. I, I went down to Florida to uh, Richard's seminar and I had a blast down there learning from him. <clears throat> we had some time outside with some of the setup stuff and, and the games that he had already put together. And then we had a little time inside on PowerPoint going over some really, really interesting stuff to me on kind of the mode of play and how we're getting all these kids interested into certain games. 
whether that be more of the extrovert kid, the introvert, we've got physical, uh, mental, social. Uh, that was kind of one of my questions and, and I'll ask that going down the road, but uh, I learned a lot from Richard just on like how to structure sessions and, and get things set up. So the kids are all included in your sessions. It's not just banging golf balls or you find the kid that's a little bit less, we'll say talented in the hand-eye coordination department and they need more of an intellectual game. They need more inclusion and the way you structure your sessions needs to include all these kids. So I, I learned a lot on kind of how to structure a session better to touch a wider audience. Awesome. So how will you implement that back at core? So when you and Dan, when the snow finally goes away and you get out there, it's training camps in full swing. What will the, the, the differences be? What will, how will sessions look a little bit different? How will they be, all encompassing how will they stimulate this this different side this social side this psychological side that, that rich so passionately explained in in his last sort of uh, answer well i think there's strategy involved in certain games and certain setups that you have where you have the more intellectual kids that need to be team leader in figuring out how to get certain tasks done with partners and the partner's aspect is the social side. And they have, whether it's one partner or four partners or 10, we, we have them in a group setting. So that social side of things, and they're kind of getting along, getting to know the other kids. The intellectual side is more of the strategy stuff. And how do we get this done? And which way do we aim? And what's the best ricochet angle? And how do we, how do we work together as a unit to get this done? And then the physical is more golf ball intensive and we're we're hitting golf shots and we're chipping and we're putting and there's lots of reps and then turn order is quicker and we're hitting a lot of golf balls so you can kind of structure sessions where you can hit all three or you can even in, in my opinion you can make it where it's on Monday if you've seen the kids multiple times that week on Monday it's more of a social setting and Wednesday it's more physical and Friday um, so on and so forth. And you structure your sessions where it's kind of one each session, or if you put them all together, then you can make sure that the kids that are maybe less inclined to be so good at the physical stuff, they're involved every session too. Rich, does, uh, does Dan pass? Wow. Does a judge pass he, the, the examination that he, we just gave him? He, he, re <laughs> he really did pay attention. That was beautiful. <laughs> there you go, Judd. Nice that work. That, that was perfect. So let me let me let me just give you a couple nuggets there. So I think what 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 Judd was just saying is 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 pretty easily described in what we call our three four three approach. And so you know my my task now you know it, I'll, I'll put on a different hat now. I'll, I'll get off my you know philosophical theoretical hat and let me put on my business hat. And you know I it, I'm tasked with you know, this summer alone, we've got 175 uh, team members working our camps in the Chicagoland area. So it's 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 a big project. We've got multiple locations, and we're really going for this turnkey solution to get brand new Discover Golf programs up and running, fully staffed by you know by myself and our team in Chicago. And so, how are we getting 175 19-year-olds to understand the dynamics that? <laughs> 
you know, really have no uh, no bottom to their depth, right? Well, we've got to start somewhere. So the three four three, I think, is a really easy way for people to kind of understand what Discover Golf is and how you run it. So the first three are the three types of games within Discover Golf. So we say uh, the first type is meta mega, and so what that means is like this is a game that can house up to or I should say minimum sixteen kids up to 60 kids, right? So it's essentially a game that en encapsulates an entire class. Okay, so a mega game has very concrete rules and you're doing it a very certain way and we're gonna have certain outcomes and that's great. Then you have a, a meta game, which is a little bit more of a white space canvas that coaches can then inject different training themes, based on different skill levels and different motivational profiles and different personalities. Okay, cool. So that's like your high-end sort of game as a class. Then you've got your medium weight games, which are 15 minutes to 30 minutes, which probably help you explore deeper or more, let's say, nuanced emotional traits, right? So now you would have 1v1s or 2v2s, and you would have set collecting games or uh, beat your best games or... Um, live ball games, or, you know, we, we could go on forever on talking about the different mechanical properties. Then you've got fillers, which is sort of your last category, which is really just what people know Discover Golf as on the internet, right? Like, oh, you're the guy that, that, that people blow up the Martians. Like, okay, fine. That's like one dimension of what we do, which is to, just to create these um, these sort of sideline targets that just offer like just a little hit of dopamine because they're highly novel and they're way more stimulating than hitting a ball to like a, an arbitrary green grass target, right? Like they're, they're just a way more high fidelity experience. So there's your three, meta, mega, medium weight, and filler. So then the four is to me the core mechanic and whether you're using Discover Golf or whatever, you should understand turn order, right? So what is the, what is the rate in which the child is engaging with the play context? So you have traditional turn order, right? Which is I go, you wait, you go, I wait. Okay, cool. That that That's interesting in some formats and horrible in others. Then you have batched turn order, which is, okay, I'm going to go 10, you're going to go 10, and then the coach is going to go out into the field and redistribute the play environment based on what those 10 shots did, right? That would be an example of batched. So you can see we're going from one, one, one to 10, 10, 10. So we're increasing the rate of, let's say, physical activity. Then you have a one, two, three, one, two, three count. So when I'm in Chicago and I've got 68 kids all playing one game simultaneously, I've got to sort of manage the turn structure, you know, via bullhorn, literally bullhorn. And it's one, two, three, go. One, two, three, go. So you're keeping this really like uh, sort of, uh, steady state of engagement throughout the whole contest. Then on the far side, you've got rapid fire, right? Which we all know what that is. There's no waiting. It's just, okay, cool. That has, that has some merits as well. Okay. So then what's the last three? Well, based on the game that you're picking, the inherent turn order to the game or the, the manipulation of the turn order of a given game then relates to the three modes of play which is physical, mental, social, exactly to Judd's point. So if you have a traditional turn order game, 
because there's more waiting time, you could also construe that or maybe think of that as um, water cooler time, right? Time to chat, time to talk junk, time to think, time to socialize. Cool. So mental social comes into play within that turn order structure. On the far end of that, that you aren't contemplating, right? The, the the grander strategy of the moment because you're deeply engaged with the haptic sensibilities of the club and the ball. So I think what we're trying to do at a very simple level is teach coaches that they can toggle in and out of let's say different modes of experience, right? Or different modes of play by the game they select and the turn order within that game. So I think that's really been a big part of this year and going forward and getting people excited about what we're doing, because I think if they just listened to the first eight minutes of this interview, they'd probably be like, okay, I don't really know what to make of that. And that's understandable. Uh, you don't have to go into phenomenology with me, but I think everyone can go into three, four, three with us. Yeah. Um, Rich, can you, can you just throw out just for people listening a couple of the the games and the rules and we you know how you do structure them? Obviously, we've yeah. used the the Discover Golf games. We've all been on the website. Um, I was at the PGA show, uh, but some people listening might not even know what the Discover Golf games look like, how cool they are, um, how much yeah, let's, fun that the kids yeah. can have from these. So just just throw out a couple of the games, a couple of the few of the rules, and then. I'm sure Dan will have a question. We'll we'll finally let Dan ask his question. Let's yeah let let's let's start with uh, Meta Mega right. So let's do a mega game. So we've got a mega game called Rome was built in exactly one day, and so you have 24 hours quote unquote, which is a 30 second like uh, real time dynamic. Okay, so the coach is there with their smartphone and say okay. Here, here's, here's how this is going to run, everybody. You've got 16 kids hitting balls simultaneously, 8v8. That'd be a perfect scenario, right? Okay, cool. Out in the field of play, and this could be 30 yards away, this could be 70 yards away. I probably wouldn't do 70. You're going to be running quite a bit here. You got them out there, 30 yards, tennis balls, uh, regular balls, whatever you want based on the, the skill level of the player. And out in the field, you've got Roman characters, walls, time ads, leaky walls, right? All of this different componentry. The, the, the goal of the game is to build a Roman city that houses key Roman characters, right? And so you acquire these characters by striking them with your golf ball, your tennis ball in the field of play. You're going to get walls, right? And all these protective mechanisms to make sure that your characters don't get stolen out of your city. So what is this, right? This is the hook. This is what we're playing for. This is the immersion. This is the, the narrative space of play. So 30 seconds go, because when we're done with 24 30 second increments, the game is done. And we then um, decide, you know, who we, we evaluate who has the most points and we, we declare a winner. So throughout this game, you've got all this striking, you've got all this city building going on, and then you've got these really interesting choice moments where if you hit a wall, you get to either protect or steal. So what does that mean? You can take your wall and you can, you can build literally a wall in front of your city to protect it from future invasion, or you can cash that in as an opportunity or an affordance to steal from the other team. So what is that? That's a choice, right? So that's agency of your environment. 
What else is it? It's player interaction. Is it hostile or harmonious? It's hostile, Ian. We're literally telling a nine-year-old in the first six minutes, what do you want to do with this piece? Do you want to build or do you want to rip somebody's soul out in this game context, which makes them feel alive? Oh my God, I'm nine years old. I'm used to AYSO and bunch ball and being told what to do. And I just run around and nothing really matters. No, dude, that's not how it is here. In the first six minutes, you're going to be tasked with a critical situation in front of 15 spectators and which might thrust you in a position where all eyes are on you and you're going to try to chip over their wall and steal a character for this heroic moment for your team. This is minute eight, dude. This is minute eight. We haven't even gotten started yet and we've given you an amphitheater, right, to show yourself to the world. You know what that does to somebody's psyche? Uh, wh 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 whether they pull it off or not, the fact that you're willing to set up this, this amazingly, you know, seemingly complex cathedral that's all decide, that's all designed to showcase you, right, in your amazing agentic properties, right? You are somebody that can do things. You are somebody that can express meaning to yourself and to others. That's what it's about. So there you go. There's a mega game. Rome was built in exactly one day. All right, what's like a medium weight game? We got a we got a new one called Sneaker Wars. It's traditional turn order, so you have to wait for the other player, but all good. You're going to need to think here. So you set up all these sneakers on the green. Well, why are they sneakers? Why aren't they cones? If training isn't culturally relevant, it's not relevant at all, right? You you need to show that you understand the world that they live in, right? Being culturally tone deaf is not, being a, is not being as good of a coach as you can, point blank. We could play this game with cones, Ian, and it would be literally horrible. It would not exist. It do, it's not a thing, right? Where <laughs> the context has to be representative of the life that they, that they live, right? So anyway, they're shooting out for the Air Jordans and you know the sneakerheads out there, I, I think, really appreciate it. You've got different lengths of shoelace depending on the value of the shoe, right? So the number one Air Jordan has got a tiny lace, which is a target radius. And the 18th best shoe has got the longest, right? So it's, what is it? It's feedback, right? We all want feedback, like, okay, cool. Well, you would have to hit it within a 72 inch diameter circle that's governed by the lace of the shoe. So it's not like we're doing anything necessarily quote unquote different than your normal quote unquote, golf coach, which is chipping to circles or cones, we're just illustrating or illuminating the sort of cultural properties at large. Anyway, so you got sneaker wars. So you grab, you hit out, you get the shoe. Cool. Well, now you've got a math problem, which is you've got a scoring totem behind you. And there's only six spots to fill in the shoe that you, that the shoes that you're acquiring. Well, here's the thing. You have to, on the scoring totem, go from low to high right? So you can't put a higher number above a lower number. Okay, cool. So what does that mean? So Ian, let's say you score the 13 shoe. There's only six spots on the board. Where do you put it? Well, if you put it second to the bottom, right? You've then dictated the kind of shoes that you can only get going forward, right? Because now you've only got four spots for shoes 12 through one. 
right? Does that make sense? So you, we're, we're, we're deeply constraining the possibility space through the rules of the scoring totem. And then there's different ways you can score. And there's an instant win condition where if you string three numbers together, you automatically win, which is really kind of like um, a negative feedback loop to keep everybody in it. That's another way that game mechanics can um, endorse, let's just say, um, parity. And I want to touch on this too, because here's, here's one of the fundamental problems we all have as coaches. And here's how design through games can solve it. Because you, you want to talk about solving problems, let's talk about a problem. So everybody that's going to listen to this podcast has probably read Carol Dweck's work on mindset, right? I mean, that's like a universal thing in coaching. Potentially, yes, I would, I would agree with that. And, and I've even emailed, I think, the videos out to, to our parents and definitely the coaches are, are aware of it, yes. Can, can, can I, and, and let me talk to you about my, my critical thinking around um, growth mindset because I think it's vastly incomplete. And now that, that might be a shock to people because it's like, what do you mean, Carol Dweck? You can't, she's on, she's on Mount Rushmore of, of coaching. Mm, okay, maybe not. And, le, and let me explain what I mean by that. I think it's really dangerous and quite frankly hinges on laziness to have your children come in and say, guys, let me tell you something about working hard and pursuit of your goals. Let me tell you something about trying new strategies in service of the thing that you want. Let me tell you about this thing called growth mindset. Ian, that's lazy. That's incomplete. That's not how humans are inspired. You need to create contexts that organically create a sensibility around growth mindset, right? Which is the observance of creativity and a multitude of strategies and not letting the outcome necessarily influence your thinking about who you are as a person, right? You're not a golf person, you're not a math person, you're a try hard person in the context of things you care about person. Cool, that's essentially the tenets of growth mindset, but using it in such a, let's say, tone deaf brute force way, totally devalues its sentiment. So let's push this forward one more time. So if you say, okay, coach, I'm somebody who deeply cares about my kids um, appreciating the process more than the outcome. Cool. Well, I also have a problem with that because that's not how human beings are. You play to win, Ian. Nobody has ever played a game to not win. Now, I'm not saying there's not some games that are more, let's say, as Chick Semihai would say, autotelic, right? You do it just for the experience and you want to get lost in what you're doing. But I'm here to tell you, having worked with 15,000 four to 12 year olds, we play to win, baby. And, and, and there is nothing dirty or wrong about wanting to figure out how to win at something. So you can kind of start to see, right? We're a little bit at odds here with Carol Dweck's sentiment that it's all about process. And maybe I'm oversimplifying her analysis a little bit, but I, I got thrust into growth mindset in her work in a very kind of blunt way a decade ago and, and, and using it in that sort of like binary sense made my program worse. So I would also say, though, it depends on your definition of winning. Like, I don't sure. necessarily believe that coming first is winning. 
I believe coming first is coming first, but it's possible to come first and lose. You know, when we're dealing with junior golfers, we're dealing with some children that have started puberty way before other kids. We're dealing with kids that have played golf from the age of two and they might be 12 now. And then you've got another 12 year old who's played for one year. So I, I would, I agree that kids play to win. Um, but I disagree on the process versus outcome point that you raised. I, I believe heavily in being process, process orientated. And the way that I do that is I try and help students change their, their definition uh, of, of winning. Um, I guess in line with some of the John Wooden stuff um, that, that you may read. Uh, and then, you know, regard your point on growth mindset, I, I actually agree with the, the overall um, statement that, that you're making, but I think this is an adoption pathway. When I'm sending stuff to parents about growth mindset, I might be sending it to a parent that literally walks around the golf course with their child, keeps score for them, and then gets in the car and shouts at them because they missed a three foot pot on the 17th. So how am I going to influence that parent's behaviors? Where, where can I start? I have to start with something. And I, and I do think that Carol Dweck's work has added value and has supported whilst that, and you can pick holes in anything, right? But I, I do believe that Carol Dweck's work is a good starting point. Um, for sure. For those. And, and Ian, I, pre- I appreciate your sentiment there. I think you misunderstand me a little bit. So what I'm suggesting is that a articulation, right, on a whiteboard, essentially, right, or, or a, the spoken virtues of growth mindset to kids is not going to get it done. Got you. Now, r- really interesting, compelling play activities is how you get it done. Because within Sneaker Wars, within Rome, within... DG Metro within Sushi Roll, the activity itself, right? The design of play, the goal, the subs, the sub goals leading to bigger goals, right? The narrative arc, this forces children to become so process oriented, right? Because every motion that they make is an action in observance of, right? This grander scheme of a, the behavioral setting that then gets them to where they want to go. So instead of me saying, guys, I really want you to buckle down and just try hard today, I want to create narratives that meet them halfway where they say, you don't have to tell me to try hard, dude. I want to compete as hard as I can and see if I can taste the fruits of my labor in sneaker wars, in Rome was built in a day. And then I am willing to then say, okay, great. After half an hour of play where they were deeply engaged in the process, we are also going to celebrate those that were able to come up on top because I think it's really important that we all like collectively understand, first of all, great job, everybody. And like, there's no winners and losers in terms of the effort displayed, right? Don't get me, don't get me wrong, but there is something vastly important then about saying in this moment, we celebrate this team or this individual that won. There's something beautiful about the recognition that at the end of a contest, 
there is somebody that quantifiably was ahead of somebody else because now you're grappling with themes of loss and winning and coping. And these are these are not themes that we should shy away from. This is, again, getting back to my original statement, which is how do we get kids to effectively harness the emotional state that we thrust them into and to shield a child from the winning losing proposition, which is inherent to biology, Ian. The only thing that we know about why we exist is because of competition in our environment. So I, I, I am unwilling to, let's say, um, silo that from my kids. Yeah, I, I agree with that. You know, where we're based in Boston, the academic demands on a lot of our students are, are bordering on insane. But these kids are likely to go to Harvard, Stanford, graduate, become doctors, become um, interview on Wall Street for, for, for big positions in banks, attorneys. And on that journey, there's a lot of disappointment. There's a lot of internships that are going to fly away from you. There's a lot of job interviews that you're going to fail. So, yeah, Core Golf would, would absolutely agree with what you said. There's no participation trophies there there will be there will be winners and losers because that's part of life and and i guess that's to my point so even when you lose if you learn to deal with that loss effectively you're winning right you, you didn't win that game but you're winning at the at the game of life with the the psychological habits of learning to deal with failure of learning to deal with adversity of getting back up and, and learning to you know, get back on the horse, as they say, and, and apply. For let me just, let me, job. let me, let me touch on, let me touch on one little thing here, right? Because we, man, this feels good. We're, we're, we're right in the heat here. So in this moment, right in this, let, let's look at minute, minute, a hundred in a discover golf class, right? This idea that we're talking about, right. As, as, as coaches that want to see our kids flourish, right. In any capacity, we want to affect amazingly positive change at the human level, at the group level, at the society level. Okay, cool. But in this moment, minute 102 in a Discover Golf class, I don't want to strip the intensity of this moment, right? By saying, just so you know, guys, no matter what happens, we're all winners in life. No, no, I do not. In this moment, I want winning and losing to matter deeply to everybody. I want intensity. I do not want to take away the gravity of this moment because the, these moments where emotions are so high, either up or down, this is what makes people feel alive. This is what brings people back. This is why there's 1,200 kids at our facility in Chicago when there's never been more than 80 down the road right? Because human beings are deeply attracted to these high stake, high risk, high reward environments. And then Ian, once all the dust settles, right? And we say, then it's time to intervene as a coach, right? But in that moment, give it the gravity that it deserves, where this is all that matters right now is who's going to come out on top. And now again, I'm being I don't know, disruptive or whatever counterintuitive to maybe some thinking out there. I ultimately agree with everything Carol Dweck has said. That's not my point. My point is 
that the intervention or the way in which we deploy it, right? Because Carol Dweck is not in the trenches with 70 kids every single day of her life, right? That's, and that's not her job. Our job is to synthesize that research, to extend on that research, to use other fields of thought, to use empirical evidence to say, okay, cool, but maybe there's a better way to get these messages across. So that, that was hopefully my bigger point. Yeah, I agree. And that comes back to the environment you create. So again, I love that quote, not what's, ask not what's in your head, ask what your head is in. Rather than putting this information into the kids' heads, you're creating an environment that allows them to actively discover this information, to actively self-regulate. Um, and, and that when I said it better. Yeah, when I first saw the, the, the Discover Golf stuff, that's why I saw, I saw active discovery. I saw kids just in an environment that was just so nutrient-rich through play that just stimulated so many other boxes. And, and that's when I pulled uh, Jordan and Dan aside and I'm like, right, what do we have in the budget? We've got to buy some Discover mm-hmm. Golf games. Um, I appreciate that. Dan, can you, Dan, you're still there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, 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 is your question still the same? Has your question changed three or four times? But f- fire away. Yeah, it's definitely changed. So I think like you touched on a great point there. I think like the big thing for us, when I say us, like Judd and I, uh, with the training camp, like we try to point out like incremental growth. So like if you know we have one winner and a bunch of losers, and for lack of a better term. But we point out like, hey, like if you were playing a Discover Golf and they're breaking the monsters down, it's like, hey, you know, you got three this time. Last time you got two. And I think like adding that aspect of it kind of helps with uh, kind of lowering the blow of losing. And I think a lot of our kids and Judd, you would probably agree, like have definitely got better at, you know, seeing other kids win. We've had a, a bunch of like with the games that we've incorporated over the winter, like kids that we would have never even imagined uh, winning games and like kind of seeing that success, which is great. Um, so the question that I kind of had uh, and you had touched on, I thought you said something that was really great that uh, I feel like Judd and I do unintentionally, but uh, with, with sneaker wars, like you touched about like talking about connecting with their culture. And I think Judd and I are both uh, like on the younger side of coaching. Um, like we both play, video games we both listen to music that they relatively listen to i would say yeah Um, when we talk about uh like our lives outside of teaching golf it very much relates to them and i think that helps them buy in and i'm sure judd you you probably saw the same thing like when we talk about that stuff they like can't even believe that we like have even played a playstation or like (laughs) that we have listened to you know, Billie Eilish, or I don't even know who the other night, like they were talking about, but uh, I think that helps them buy into us, right? Like, I think they're willing to uh, listen to someone who they don't feel is on a different planet. So I just wanted to touch on that. And I think like my question would be, you know, once they buy into our program, and once they start to understand the game aspect and having fun and how that relates to learning a lot better, Like, when do you feel is the best time to have like a learning lesson? Like if they're in a game and they're, you know, doing the same thing over and over and they're really struggling, when, how do you go about teaching them maybe a fundamental movement without them understanding or something like that? Yeah, that's a great question. 
Um, so I think what's really critical is a couple different things, right? I think I, I've I've been teasing some ideas around here, and, and maybe this is getting kind of back to deliberate play versus deliberate practice, if you want to think of it like that. Another distinction we make is like play education versus golf education. You know, so when is it time to sort of go beyond what the game context can teach them, right? Like when do we sort of like get them into a golf specific realm? Well, I think there's a couple of things. One, it's evaluating the goal structure of the child, right? Not every child wants to be pulled out of the game context to be taught anything. And I think there's probably more kids like, and especially as your program grows, you'll see more and more kids that are here 100% for the experience and them and you getting them sort of sidelined to talk about where their club is at the top is just so out of touch with why they're there in the first place. So I think it's like having like a very strong intuition around what's appropriate for the child. Um, I think that becomes clearer the more you get to know them. Obviously, I think there's, there's, I look at this, huh, I, I prefer this idea of happiness versus meaningfulness. And so how I sort of um, segregate those two or look at the spectrum is happiness to me is very much just like the, the sort of transient physiological state, you know, dopamine in the brain, feel good vibes, right? It's just, it's, it's very much this bodily feet, like just, it's just pleasure, right? And I think what you need to do is say, where, where does this child want to be? Do they just want to be in this sort of like this hedonistic state where it's just all about good music and good vibes and just, just getting two hours of, of vitamin D and UV rays and just some dopamine. And let me tell you, there's a bunch of kids that need all of those things, right? Like a lot, a lot, because they've been stuck on a damn Zoom call for the last two years and they're... They're, they're anxious and they're not connecting with kids and they're not con connecting with their body and they're not connecting with nature. So I think, first of all, we need to say there's a bunch of kids that just need vitamin D and dopamine. Okay, cool. Now, maybe the other kids that want, let's say, more meaningfulness, which means they want to extract something out of this environment that they're sort of integrating into their sort of motivational like spectrum. And through, and I think the, the mediator of meaningfulness is suffering, right? And, and maybe that's a strong word for people, but that's really alongside deliberate practice, right? Is they're going to say like, okay, your, 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 your moment by moment experience in deliberate practice is often arduous and private and difficult and right, full of friction and turmoil. I think those are relatively good words for what you're describing, which is if you ask a child to give you, let's say five repetitions with a new grip, what you're essentially doing is asking them to suffer, right? In observance of something that you don't know, or you think, you know, is meaningful to them, right? Does that make sense? So if you think it's meaningful, them meaningful to them, for them to walk away with an experience that was somewhat based on suffering because that's like their observance of their values, then do that, right? I know some kids that come in and they got the Kiwa Island bag tag and they got the class of 2028 AJGA. And I'm like, this kid wants to suffer. No question about it, right? <laughs> if he doesn't leave here without a serious suffer session, he's going to feel like I didn't give him what he wants or her. 
And there's nothing wrong with it. I think people would be really surprised at how militant some of our coaching looks like because that's completely appropriate for, again, this kind of like suffer state that, that we as human beings need. Like I was up at 3.30 this morning and ran a mountain. I do that because if I don't suffer a little bit every day, I don't feel like I've, I've, I've hit my meaningfulness quota. And this is like, this was touched upon in uh, Paul Bloom's recent book called The Sweet Spot. I think everybody should read that book. This is obviously talked about in many different realms of philosophy and psychology. But I prefer this idea of happiness versus meaningfulness as kind of the underlying context for your question. And I did not do a good enough job of answering specifically what I do with coaching interventions, but that's not as important as what I just said. I liked it. It was a, it was a strong answer. Uh, are you a David Goggins guy? Uh, I mean, I get it, right? I mean, I, I yeah. totally appreciate the, uh, the, the sentiment. I, I'm not a social media consumer, so I don't, I don't look at too much of it. I, I, I read his book, You Can't Hurt Me. So that was basically um, the message that, that you gave is, is uh, prominent through, throughout his book. Uh, guys, any any more questions before we uh, we wrap this up? I've got a I've got a question for him on uh, just some more on the business side of things with EOD, and for I guess those of those of the listeners out there that don't know what EOD is, the end of the day event and how you kind of finish your day Man. with dopamine. Um, I, I really, really, really think it's, it's just crazy important for our program and, and we all have to be better at the EODs. So how do you, you, you said this great at the seminar, Richard, and I'm just trying to remember exactly how you put this for our, say at financial responsibilities to make sure we stay within our budget and you, give away golf clubs at certain things, which may become expensive and really great prizes at the end of certain events. So how would you kind of classify or I guess, describe the importance of spending some, some money to purchase really great prizes to give away at the end of the day? It's, it's the most grossly underrated aspect of coaching ever conceived by man. What, 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 what we're talking about right now, and, and we probably don't have time to get into this, and, and this will be controversial as well, which maybe, maybe Ian will like that. You know, okay, I, let's go. I, 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 so along the lines, right, we just talked about like the sacred cow of growth mindset. Okay, cool. Like, let's tease that apart. Like, we broke that up a little bit, and I think had a lively conversation about its merits and its deployments, and cool. Intrinsic versus extrinsic rewards, right? If, if you've done any research, right, in, in reward psychology or social determination theory, like you're, you're, you're grappling with these concepts, right? Like this is like coaching 101. Like, are we trying to create environments that are intrinsically motivating or extrinsically motivating? Well, people should look at, and, and we can put this in the show notes, the meta-analysis of, um, of these theoretical implications. And so what, what does that mean? Every study that has ever been done on how humans behave, right, in observance of, let's say, 
intrinsically motivating environments versus extrinsically motiv motivating environments. So the classic study, which you've probably all heard, right, is you've got, I think it was a fourth grade class of um, kids, maybe it was younger, but the, the premise is true, and that they were all painting, right? And so they're doing their finger paints or their watercolors. And then all of a sudden, if like you had the best watercolor painting, like you got a, you got a ribbon or you got some prize, right? And so like, the study went on to explain that if you made it quote unquote transactional, right, you de you demeaned the creativity and the process of the painting, and it was simply about what it afforded you in terms of an ex extrinsic reward. Okay, so like we all got freaked out, and it was like, oh my god, you can't have it. You can't have external rewards. Like you're gonna you're gonna kill these kids' creativity, and oh my god, it's so bad. Okay, well I wasn't willing to take that at face value, like like all things. And so I dug into it and the meta-analysis was really interesting. So the first thing is extrinsic rewards always, always optimize behavior if the activity itself is not, is not um, considered as intrinsically motivating to start, right? So think about that premise, right? So like, this is why, and we can have a longer conversation about you know, people going to work that they don't love, but they're well paid and they have insurance and it gives uh, sort of umbrage to the outside world and they support their family and they, they end up appreciating it for all the things that it gives them. That's, that's a sort of bigger way of looking at extrinsic rewards. And we could say, well, they should move to Costa Rica and become a surfing instructor and really do what they love. Come on, man, this is a real world. Like there's always going to be extrinsic rewards that are evaluated, right? Like I'm on this phone call trying to be as articulate, uh, trying to be as articulate as I can and demonstrating my worthiness because uh, amongst other things, I want to be recognized as somebody who's doing the research and in intelligent ways, you know, shaping the industry. This is not purely based on my love of reading scientific journals, right? I want to be recognized for these things, which is why I'm on this podcast with you. So to strip away the the, the everyday um, connection with extrinsic rewards with kids is incomplete. So again, this is an opportunity space for us as coaches to intervene, to bring these themes into action, break them apart and educate these kids, right? On, on how much we should value external things or not. So to loop this back to your to, to your question, yeah, we play for a golf club every single day. And it's a golf club, it's 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 a custom hoodie that we drop that there's only two of. And so you can say rewards need to either have extreme utility or they need to be scarce, right? But like you saying, like we're playing for a Snickers bar, A doesn't have utility and B isn't scarce, right? So A, it's not really even a, an extrinsic reward. So every single day at the end of at the end of our class, we're playing for something big. So we know that because there's 60 kids in our class, how many of those kids, Judd, are intrinsically motivated by the pursuit of playing golf in a summer camp with 65 kids? A lot. <laughs> intrinsically motivated. They already find golf compelling. Oh, like no, maybe, um, maybe maybe 20 percent. Oh, that's uh, that's too high, my man. I, I'm going to say I'm going to say 10 percent at best. And then you're going to say that even that 10 percent is somewhere on the, the spectrum of 
hey, I don't care what this, I don't care what this is for. I don't care what I shoot. I'm getting out of bed at 6 a.m., 7 a.m., and I'm coming to hit golf balls for the love of contact. That is such a rare, rare thing. And it's not, it doesn't make it good or bad. It's just the real world, right? So now you've got these kids that are like, okay, I'm playing for the prize. Well, guess what, Judd? They're playing. And guess what? They've just hit it 200 times. Guess what? They've just hit it 400 times. Guess what? They've just hit it 10,000 times. Guess what starts to happen? They develop agency over their environment. And you know, this, this has been so profound for me. The child that came in who's looking at me like, yo, dog, I don't want to be here. You know, I don't want to be here. I can't wait to go home to mom and say, I told you so. That was weak. I see that look in these kids and they're, they're waiting for me, right, to fold and to, to, and to, self, to help them confirm that golf is boring as hell. That they're, they're, they're saying, I'm, they're testing me. Say, okay, all right, dude, here we go, baby. We playing for a club. You ready? Right. We got this extravagant setup, blah, blah, blah. Music's popping. You got the baby clean remix popping off on the sideline. People are freaking out. I'm like, still lame, dude. Still lame. I know he doesn't want to be here. I know he thinks this is weak. We're going to do everything we can to make this not weak. And so we're going to put a big ass golf club, a custom hoodie, all this stuff up for grabs. You know what? If we do that for 10 sessions, if we do that for 20 sessions, first of all, I'm the only guy on planet Earth that has kept that kid for 20 sessions. I'm the only guy that keeps that kid for 100 sessions. And you know what? That's about the only chance that I have to get that kid to interact with the equipment long enough to suddenly say, I'm actually pretty good at this. I'm like, yeah, dog. Now we get to go do all this other stuff where, hey, you know about track, man? Oh, cool. Like, you know that thing that you're doing? We can measure that. Oh, and you want to curve it both ways? Let me show you about the club face. Oh, you don't know what birdies are? How about eagles, bro? You know what an albatross is? Let's go albatross hunting, my son. That took took three years. That took three years of dangling a carrot to get him there. My God. So I, I agree. I want to, I want to just expand a little bit, Rich, and you can give me feedback on, on this. Cause I, with our older kids, uh, kids that want to go to college, um, we do a lot of goals, college, play college golf. We do, a, um, a goal setting process and we discuss internal versus external or intric intrinsic versus ex- extrinsic motivation. And, I make it perfectly clear, perfectly clear that it's okay to be externally motivated. In fact, it's very, very, very good. And over time, you may want to shift and discover intrinsic motivators because my belief and, and from reading studies, external motivation at some point will wear out. There's only, only so many hoodies these kids are going to want. There's only so many hoodies... Yep. Uh, that they can have so many clubs that they're going to win. You know, you look on the PGA tour, I'm sure when Tiger Woods was a rookie, those first few checks were pretty awesome. I don't think they didn't in his bank account so much now. So at some point you got to shift, but I think the problem is a lot of these studies don't point out another form of motivation, which is zero, which you mentioned. So 
I, I look at motivation from a standpoint of there's zero, there's extrinsic, and there's intrinsic. I would much rather my students had extrinsic motivation than zero motivation. Um, oh, so well said. And, and, and let, me, let me offer one quote. So um, Jung, the, the great philosopher, psychologist said, you spend your first half of your life building a healthy ego. You spend the second half dissolving it. Mm. I, I, I love that because to me, my job is to build self-efficacy. You can use any language that you want. I want these kids to feel competent and confident in the face of adversity, right? And if that, if that is what we have been able to achieve, that's great. And to your point, as we get older and wiser and realize that material values act, you know, material things actually don't have the value that we first perceive them to have. That's a natural maturate maturation process that we all go through, but to give, to not give these kids, right. This healthy ego satisfaction when, when it's so critical at an early age that, that we're not, we're not doing as good as we can. Rich, very, very, very thought provoking. You know, I, 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 I'm up with a lot of the research, not not to your level, but um, I'm I'm constantly reading, constantly trying to understand and and decipher this, and and for me this has been thought provoking. My self talk now is is kind of reviewing some of the things I've done and wondering if I can do a better job uh, in in certain areas. So really appreciate your time. Um, I would love to wrap up. Why don't you tell parents? Uh, and, and golfers where they can find your equipment and then why don't you shout out coaches about where they can find your education and and what you've got on the horizon in that respect appreciate that you know look we're we're kind of at an inflection point you know as as a company where i'm really concerned with the 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 people and the life energy that's that that's behind closed doors you know, if, if I espouse basically that environment is everything, then I need to control my environment. I need to control the environment of, of our collective. And so really, you know, you're going to notice on the website, discovergolf.co, there's no games for sale. There's no advertising for X, Y, and Z. I just want to connect with people. I want to hear their story. I want to understand, you know, what they want to do with kids. I want to understand what they want to do at a community level. You could be a PE coach. You could be a, you could be a parent. You could be a concerned dad. I want to talk with you. I want to share ideas. I want to figure out synergies between us. I really want to sort of transcend this again, like transactional relationship where, hey, I can buy a couple games from him and see how it goes. Like, yeah, we've done that already. Like we're 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 here to do some really big things, and I and I want to partner with people that, again, have, are taking a leap of faith and that really want to bring radical change to themselves and to others. And so I know that's a non-traditional answer, but that's just where I'm at as a as a person and as a as a leader of this company. So, um, you know, get on get on the website, um, e- email our team. You can you can reach me at my uh, at my uh, my personal Instagram, uh, I think it's rfranklin9. I check it, you know, once every couple of days, send me a DM. Shoot, you can text me 520-248-8760. Text me, baby. Just take the leap of faith and let's talk. Awesome, man. Rich, appreciate your time. Appreciate you um, 
getting up and down that mountain in time to come and uh, come and chat with us, get out of suffering mode and uh, come and speak, share all your knowledge and passion. You. Uh, it's been awesome. Thank you. And we'll uh, we'll do it again sometime. And uh, I'm sure hey, you'll be getting that. Me... You'll be getting a message from Judd and Dan about buying some more sneaker heads and, and lots of other things. Yeah, you got you 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 guys are in the collective. Whatever you need. So uh, let me just thank you guys. I I I can't thank you enough for the platform to be able to share my ideas and to hopefully inspire. Whether it's the 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 four gentlemen in this room or or hopefully a couple other dozen out there in the world. To to me, this is a uh, I'm a man possessed. That that's all I can say is is I'm I'm trying to channel, I'm trying to channel you know my my desire to make real change happen in 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 uh, in the real world. So thank you for the opportunity. No, thank you. I'm sure you'll be successful. We we really enjoy your passion and energy, Rich. Have a have a great day. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Core Performance Podcast. Your one-stop shop for getting to the core of all things golf and human performance. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Ian and Andrew, check us out on Instagram at Core Academy. We'll see you next time.